Our scripture reading is from the letter of Apostle Paul to the Ephesians. We'll be reading from Ephesians, a portion in chapter 2, and then a portion in chapter 4. In chapter 2, we read from verses 13 through 22. These are all portions that are speaking of the church, of the Lord Jesus Christ, its identity and its activity. So chapter 2 of Ephesians, beginning in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometime were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. And now we turn to page um, chapter 4 of Ephesians, beginning in verse 1. We'll read from verse 1 to 16 of chapter 4. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope, of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace, according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, 
unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Amen. May God bless the reading of His own word and we receive. The identity of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have one more sermon in which we hope to focus upon this very theme. And based on what the church is, we also learn what the church is supposed to be doing. And so in our first point, we will continue focusing on the identity of the church, what the church is, and secondly, what the church does, what what its activities ought to be, what it should be focusing upon. But why? Why must we study the identity of the church? Well, it is lest we lose this identity, lest we forget who we are. Throughout history, we do see that this has happened to the church And in times in which the church has forgotten what it's really supposed to be, what it really is and supposed to be doing, that is when error has encroached, that is where heresies have developed, and where the church really stopped being what it was supposed to be. It was no longer light in the darkness. It was dark in and of itself. Um, Os Guinness, a theologian and a writer, he says this, Um, concerning this whole reality. He says, The concern among evangelicals today is about relevance and reinvention, about new ways of doing church through revising, innovating, borrowing, mixing, and experimenting. Yet, in our uncritical pursuit of relevance, Christians have actually become irrelevant by our determined efforts to redefine ourselves in ways that are more in line with the modern world than are faithful to Christ, we have lost not only our identity, but our authority and significance. That is what's happening. Many churches are so much in this quest as, as he has delineated, to, to, to prove to the world that we have a purpose and, and we try to start doing things that the world wants the church to do because that's where the world thinks purpose is to be found. And when the church follows that path, it really loses its purpose. It loses its relevance. And in many quarters, they have this mindset that if we become a lot more like the world, unbelievers will come in and not feel so uncomfortable and they might feel fine in the church. And, and you hear even from 
unbelievers themselves. Why would I go to that church? It looks just like the bar that I'm used to. And I'm tired of that. You do find unbelievers who have, in a sense, more sins than some professed believers. We are not called to make the world look like, make the church look like the world. The moment we do this, there really is no more church. It's just more world. So we began seeing in God's Word where this identity is to be found. And we saw last Lord's Day from Hebrews 10. Remember, we were there and we saw pretty much all of these. We saw that um, the church is composed of believers. Even this morning, we were looking at Acts 2, and and one of the descriptions of who those people were that were acquiescing to Peter's um, command to repent and be baptized, and they're they're entitled this way, all that believed were together. Believers. Believers was, in many ways, the first title of Christians. They were people who believed the message of the gospel. Hebrews 10.39, them that believe. Acts 2, all that believed were together. And, and that belief, that faith, is therefore exposed in a profession. Believers are professors. They are professors of that faith. It is not a faith that we hide. It is a faith that we live. We saw also that one of the identity of, of Christians, of believers, of professors of faith, is that we are a family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We saw the term brethren and looked at the theme of familyhood. And then we saw also that we are co-workers, and that involves the idea that we are to be serving together. We saw that we are the husbandry of God. That shows the reality that we are cared by God, He the shepherd and we the sheep. We saw the reality that we are a building And that brought the reality of how the church is meant to grow, to be built together. We'll look at this very figure again in in Ephesians 2. We read in verse 20 of chapter 2, "...and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building, building fitly framed together grows up in a holy temple in the Lord." This whole idea of being a temple, even to the point where being a building, even to the point where this building is called a temple. And when you think of the temple of the Old Testament, that was so that God would have a habitation here on earth. And that figure carries on for the church. Paul says, In whom ye also are built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. So with the theme that the church is a building, we have also the concept that the church is the temple of God, therefore God's habitation. See, this is the identity of the church. We're not a club. We're not a human institution. we, We are a temple. We are a building, a spiritual building. We also saw last Lord's Day that we are fellow citizens This brings the whole concept of a kingdom, and we are co-citizens in this kingdom. It brings a concept that Christ is our king. And then the last thought we looked at in terms of identity is that the church is one body. And I want to continue here today because there's more to speak of this as we look at Ephesians 2 and 4. What we looked at was how powerful that union is, that not even death 
can break it. Because when death comes upon a member of the body of Christ here on earth, yes, they go to heaven and they continue a member of the body of Christ in heaven. The church triumphant is still united to the church militant. When they worship God day and night without ceasing, and there is no night, but as an expression, without ceasing, in a sense, in all of our worship services, spiritually, we are joining them in that worship. We are together with them. We sit together even now in heavenly places with the Lord Jesus Christ ruling this earth. And in a sense, when death does come, it only binds us here on earth more closely together because we are grieved by it. We weep with those who weep. We are sorrow because of the departure of a loved one. And that element of death only brings our ties closer together. And this morning we, we looked at Acts 2, verse 44, and did, did you realize there all of the nuances about togetherness? All that believed were together, and they continuing daily with one accord in the temple. They, they, they were having the same ideas, the same plans, the same thoughts, and breaking a bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness, and that phrase, singleness of heart. Um, that was Acts 2.46. I, I want to bring in that, that nuance of the word singleness of heart. The word singleness is a word that when you think of it in a negative way, it's, it's better to explain it that way, at least in my way of thinking. The negative definition of this word singleness is the idea of a rough rock. And a rough rock that is not easy to walk on, that you might stump your feet The word here that they were together is the opposite of that. It is a smooth rock. So it brings the sense of harmony, the sense of smoothness. And that's why the translation, singleness of heart, a heart that was united, a heart that was in union. And now we read here in Ephesians chapter 2. This is what, what Paul is so much with a burden writing to the church of the Ephesians. He has this sense to communicate to them the reality of the unity of the body of Christ. And in verse 16 is where he starts with this. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Now, if, I'm going to read just the beginning here for you to see even what Paul is bringing. Why is he having to emphasize the reality of unity? There in chapter 2, verse 13, we begin reading, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes afar off, these are the Gentiles, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. So the Gentiles come. For he is our peace who hath made both one. Now who are these both? Well, the Gentiles and the Jews. And hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. See, there was this giant wall between Jews and Gentiles. You could not dare say that you were going to be a Jew just as a matter of fact. Even in a terms religious. For you to become a proselyte Jew, that's even where there would be a baptism for you if you were a Gentile. If you were a man, there would be a circumcision. You would have to memorize portions of Deuteronomy. There would be what you could say a confession of faith so that you could be seen as a proselyte Jew. And yet, see, this is what would happen. You would be a proselyte Jew. 
not a Jew. It never happened. The best is that you could be a proselyte Jew. The second best, you could be a God-fearer. That's who Cornelius was when Peter meets him. He wasn't yet a proselyte Jew, but he was a God-fearer of the Gentiles. That was what you could say the second best. And then the third case would be a Gentile out there, far as could be. And even when you became, therefore, a Jew, you could be allowed in the Gentile quarter of the temple, but not closer. And Paul is saying, in Christ, that is all done with. That middle wall of partition is broken. It has gone away, verse 15, having abolished in his flesh, in the death of Christ, the enmity. See, there was an enmity between Jews and Gentiles, a war, as it were. Even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God, both Jews and Gentiles, in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. You see how truly the gospel is the only cure to any kind of animosity between peoples. Because the truth is, yes, there may be more animosity between peoples who are different from each other, and the world calls that racism. But it is a a misplaced name because there are no races. We are one people. And you see the proof of this where you see people who are clearly of the same ethnicity and they're still fighting and killing each other. That's the history of the world and it's happening right now. It's not that in our hearts we don't like people who are different. We don't like people, period, in and of ourselves. There's a wall of partition between every man and woman and and another neighbor. But when Christ comes into your life, it doesn't matter the language, the ethnicity. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. He's bringing this reality of one body. And then verse 20 is where he continues. Now he, he goes from the body to the building. He goes back to the building figure and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, etc. And then... I want to read also some verses from chapter 4. This is where you could say Paul clearly settles now. He gave some introductions about one body and the unity. But now here Paul is going to really make his case that unity is so clearly important. Now a very important thing. We are not the ones who are called to establish any unity. This This is very important. The call is not for us to make this unity existent. The the call is not for us to, to establish this unity. The call is for us to keep it because it already exists. That is very important. Because when we believe this way, we are looking to the cross and saying that's where it happened. When Jesus died on the cross, it was in his flesh that that middle wall was broken. And so if you're still angry at some believer who's different from you or, or you think he's from a denomination and you're not wanting to accept him because maybe he thinks a few things different from you and yet it's completely biblical, there's nothing of a contrariety with elements of salvation and in your heart there is a wall. So you need to understand you're the one who kept that wall there. It's been destroyed by the death of Christ. But there are Christians who build figurative, non-existent walls. 
And then therefore, that is our sin. That is my hatred that I need to mortify and put to death. Look how Paul puts it. In in verse 2, he says of chapter 4 now, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. This this is the antidote. We're going to come back to this. Endeavoring to keep the unity. See? Not to establish the unity, but to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The unity already exists. We are called to keep it, to promote it, to make sure that we're living it, to, to make sure that we are even being blessed by it, to make it stronger, you could say, in our experiencing it, but not to establish it. It's already there. And so he goes, there is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. You could say here that this is what establishes the reality. The beginning of this unity is the reality of one God, the reality of one Lord, the reality of one faith, of one baptism, of one hope. This is like the foundation of our unity. And then he goes on to say the reality of the goals. After he establishes that there will be these gifts, and we'll come back to the reality of the different gifts that some are apostles in verse 11, some are prophets, etc. Verse 12 says, For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. This, beloved, is what you and I are called to do. Period. We, we are not here to choose what I want to do. Like, well, as a church, I want to emphasize on this kind of reality in the world. As a church, I want to emphasize it. No, we are called to this together. Perfecting of the saints, the work of the ministry, the edifying of the body of Christ. See, we're united in how we begin We're united in what we are to do, the goals that we are called to have. And in doing these things together, through the Lord who unifies us, we will be found in unity, serving the Lord in a way that glorifies Him. So we could say unity because of the source of the church and unity because of the goals of the church But ultimately, this unity is going back to the source. Now we we go, in essence, to our number nine in the list of what we've been seeing. The identity of the church with this thought that we are one body is that Christ is our head. This thought puts together all the others. Who is the church? The church is a body and Christ is the head. The church is a flock. Christ is our shepherd. The church is a people. Christ is the king. The church is a building. Christ is the cornerstone. You notice, when you think of the identity of who you are, you have to understand that Christ is, in essence, the foundation or the commander or the builder, or the one who... It's all in the sense of centrality, all in the sense of energy, all in the sense of power. That's where the church derives its life. 
And look where Paul shows this very clearly in chapter 4. If you go to verse 15, we read, But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him. So he's speaking of the church with this thought as a building or as a body, and it's growing into him in all things, in this phrase, which is in all things, wait, growing up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Christ is the head of the body. This, of course, is in many ways the most important thing for us to understand about the church. We are not an independent people. We are not an institution in which we will follow our own heads and our own ideas. See, this is where the whole problem is, where people lose track of Christ and they look at one speaker who sounds very, very charismatic and very um, interesting and eloquent and people start following that head. The moment we do this, we stop being a church. Christ is the head of the church. Now, verse 16 that I want to look to look at it's it's a very challenging verse it's um it seems to be the verse in which paul inspired by the spirit is using every word possible in a human way to express something of this mystical union of the body of christ and its relationship to jesus who is our head As we look at it phrase to phrase, it will show how precious this unity is. And what what I want you to understand in terms of application, beloved, in, in many ways, in the time and in the season where the church was not being allowed even and finding a difficult time in coming close to each other, this was one of the greatest concerns I had is that We don't just meet because it's a practical thing to do. We come together, even even in our fellowship meals, and even in prayer meetings and prayer services, and even if we go to someone's home for a hymn sing and we're there in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is something spiritual and mystical. I use the word mystical meaning spiritual in the way that it's not material and something that we can explain through science, but we can explain through God's word. And verse 16 touches on that reality. Let's look at verse 16. So as he introduces Christ, he starts with the head, even Christ. Then he says, from whom the whole body, so every single member of the body of Christ, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body into the edifying of itself in Love. Let's go this, look at this phrase by phrase to understand it. From whom the whole body, so that's the church, every member of the true church of Christ, fitly joined together. Let's look at that phrase first. Fitly joined together. So the figure here is, is the body. So 
you think of this part of the arm and the upper arm, and it is fitly joined together, so much so that it goes in harmony and it stays together. This is the same kind of phrase that Paul used when he was talking about the church as a building in chapter 2, verse 20. And he said, in 21, in whom all the building fitly framed together. So you would think of one piece of wood this way and one piece of wood this way and then another piece of wood, etc. And you have a house and it's fitly framed together. And now in speaking about the body, he uses the same kind of analogy, but in regards to a body and says that it is fitly joined together. It's every part close to each other. There's a harmony to it. It's, this is why I brought at the very introduction Acts 2 where it spoke of the church with a singleness of heart, with that smoothness. It's the same kind of sense when you think of what it's speaking. When you think of these body parts, it is through a joint that it's together and there is a smooth we want it to be a smooth kind of connection. You, you look at it with a microscope and you'll see the cartilage and it is smooth and it is precise. It's when there's a difficulty is where everything has somewhat of an anomaly, anomaly to it and, and it's, it's not good. It's, it's when there's frailty, when there's sickness like an arthritis or some kind of dysfunction. But when it's working right, it is smooth. There are liquids there. There are nerves that are making it stay in all of that smoothness and harmony. This is what Paul is bringing to our minds. This is the body. It is fit, the church, fitly joined together. And then he adds, compacted. Another word that speaks to closely knit, bond and held together. And here it can have a figurative sense in terms of even the mind. It's that one accord that Luke says in Acts 2. It is the mind of of the church having this harmony. So not only in a mechanical way, but also in a heart kind of way. He uses these figures to show how close, how united the church is. Now, if you were to ask, well, how? How is it fitly joined? How, how is it compacted? How does it stay in harmony? And that's in the next phrase, look. And compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part. Now, beloved, this is where it becomes to be Precious in its spiritual nature. We, we could think that it's saying it is knit together and compacted together by Christ the head and go directly there. But he does go there when you think of this expression in a term of physiology of the body. But even in terms of the physiology of the body, he's going to the head through the body. Now let me let me explain. How does it fit together? How is it compacted? By that which every joint supplieth. The word joint, you you translate a joint, we think immediately of the very joint part of the two elements that, that are connected. Um, Martin Lloyd Jones, when he's studying this part, he has a wonderful sermon on this passage, and he speaks, and he's a doctor. So he understands that these terms could be related to, to bands or the very tendons. Now, where, where he explains that really makes so much sense, where we do arrive at the head, is this. 
Yes, the joint is here in the arm and the bands and the tendons. But every single nerve goes from the head to every part of the body. And not only the nerve system, but also the circulation that is keeping everything irrigated with blood as it has to be and oxygenated. And you could say even the head is what controls all of that. And it controls the breathing and the pumping of the heart. So that when your joint moves, it is the joint that is moving, but it is the head commanding it to move. But even as the head is the one commanding, it is the joint that is moving. And what Paul is here is he's not surpassing the reality of the head. He introduced that at the very beginning. That's why he began in verse 15, which is the head, even Christ. And now he's speaking of the body. So he's putting the emphasis on the joint because it's, it's in essence, the Lord is saying this. I put down this phrase to try to explain it. God has chosen in his sovereignty to work through his very people so that his very people would depend on him by depending or working with one another. And this is exactly, in a sense, what's happening right now. Because it is not an angel who is here, and even if it were an angel, it would still be someone of a means. But God, this is why it's called even the foolishness of preaching. This is a human that God is using to communicate these truths that come from heaven to your heart. And as I sit with a brother and you pray and I hear you praying and it encourages me and motivates me, I am part of the body along with you and God is working in harmony into my heart using this dear beloved. It can be an elder, a brother in Christ who is praying with me or for me. And you go to visit your, your brother or sister who is sick and you spend some moments there and you pray with him or with her, and you read a portion of the Bible, you see Christ who is the head. He's the one ordering and strengthening, but you are in a way that band and that joint that is keeping that unity happening. See, Jesus doesn't come and walk and go visit that person, but he does send you to go do it. And when that is happening, this is what's happening. Every joint supplies according to the effectual working. And notice, here too, he still doesn't go to God like in a direct way, but he goes to God through God's people. The effectual working in the measure of every part. This is what I mean. God has chosen in his sovereignty to work through his very people. So that even as we work alongside one another, it is the Lord who is working, but through His very people. This very supply. And so, this unity, beloved, is not just a little thing. And when a a member of the body um, refuses to be with that unity, that person will suffer. It is, you could say, in many ways, a a chopping off of a member and leaving it all by itself. It's unthoughtful. But there are people who do that. And then they suffer spiritually. 
I've, I've shared with you already, and it's, it's like in every one of these figures, the same truth is communicated. A brick by itself is never a building. It's just a brick. A sheep by itself will not put its head down to eat. It is restless until it sees the, the flock and it will die because it thinks, why will I eat if I do not see the flock? I, I need to find it. And here we're talking about the members of the body. How will this finger move if it's not the joint to this next part and the joint to this next part and the joint that goes and the nerve that goes all the way to Christ? But you see how this little tip is dependent upon everything else that is there connected. So that when a believer says, you know, I'm fine by my own. The church, you know, they've let me down so often. They're, they're a bunch of people that are not perfect anyway. I'm just going to stay at home. That's like a lamb on its own, a brick on its own. That's a person who has a king, but he's on his own. It's like a little finger that's on its own. If they're happy and they go on and on, God's word would bring a great doubt whether that person is a true believer or not. Because of what we read. It's not something we established. It's just a truth about the church. We are like those little lambs who will not put the head down until we see the flock. We are like that people who needs to be together as we look to the king. We are like that hand that needs the wrist and needs the arm and needs the shoulder and all the way to the head. The unity. Christ as the body. And the last thing that we would look at, it's even though the reality of the unity is so spoken of and clear, look at the diversity. It is unity and yet diversity. We won't look at all of, all of the gifts, but you notice not all are apostles, not all are prophets. Some are evangelists, verse 11 of chapter 4, and some pastors and some teachers. And right here, we, we have something that would almost look like a contrast. Well, well Paul, we're not united anymore. Now, now we have all these different directions. Yes, because we are a body. Not everything is a hand. Not everyone is a forearm. Not everyone is a neck. And, and in the diversity, God is working through His people and working through His church. We are one, and yet there is a diversity. And I, I don't know if I used this illustration last time, but the ark um, of, of Noah, the Noah's ark, is such an example to all these terms we've been seeing. Because, of course, the ark was one means of salvation. It was one instrument. And yet, um, it was one building. It was full of co-workers inside. It was full of co-citizens, you could say. It was full of herds and flocks of different kinds. It had unity in the sense that they were all being saved by that one instrument. But it was full of diversity, even represented in the fact that there were three brothers and three um, sisters-in-law. And there, were, there was a husband and a, and a wife, Noah and his wife, all entered through one door and saved through one means. And yet there was that diversity that was so blessed 
And, and we are all here through them. And the church is, is like that ark. We, we are all different. We may all have the gifts that God has given us. Not may have. We, we do have all the gifts God has given. And yet we would, should serve Him with this sense of unity. Now, in a future sermon, we will look at the theme of forgiven. You know, that is the third um, article in the Lord's Day. After speaking of church and the communion of believers, it says we are forgiven. Now, I, I know that as I've gone through Lord's Day 21, often that's where I focus. So I'm purposely focusing on the church element. Um, but that is another way that you could describe the identity of believers. Forgiven. Men and women who are forgiven by the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then again, secondly and lastly, the activity, what, what the church does. We already said that the church, if we are believers, we believe. If we are professors, we profess. If, if we are <clears throat> a church, we looked at the term assembly, we assemble. It's in Hebrews 10, 25 that says not to forsake the assembling of each other, of one another. And we saw last Lord's Day that the church worships. But since this morning we read Acts 2, I just want to go through a couple of those because in Acts 2, chapter 2, I mean, Acts chapter 2, um, following the conversion of all that multitude, remember that there are two verses that describe what God's people were doing. The majority of those terms fit in what we saw last Lord's Day, worship. Now, the first thing is that they gave themselves to the doctrine of the apostles. Now, that means the preaching and the teaching of the word. That was the first thing. And, it, and it, it's amazing how God has blessed churches to remain faithful. And the majority of churches... It's still the major part of the worship service. It's God's word opened and exposed. And many churches have in the morning or sometimes in the afternoon Sunday school where the word is opened and exposed. What are we doing? We are giving ourselves to the doctrine of the apostles. That's what the Bible is, the New Testament. Um, And of course, the Old Testament was exposed the New Testament exposes the Old Testament. So when we read the Old and New Testament, we are, we are doing what the ancient church did in its very beginnings. And then it also said that the church um, broke bread from house to house. And, and I want to give a word here regarding that breaking of bread. Some people think that's only a reference to having meals together. Some people think it's only a reference to having the Lord's Supper together. Now, I do believe it's better to think in terms of the reality that it is in some degree both. Because we do have that portion where Paul is exhorting the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, that they, in their love feasts, were not partaking of the Lord's Supper in the right way, and yet everything he speaks of shows that the Lord's Supper was part of a bigger meal. There was a lot of food. There was a lot of drink to the point where people could get drunk and eat too much. 
and not have leftovers for others. So it clearly was a part of a meal, and yet he brings an exhortation that they're not doing the Lord's Supper the right way. So obviously it means that the ancient church had the practice of partaking of the Lord's Supper alongside of a meal. And so that the breaking of the bread from house to house is very likely both the reality of fellowship meals as well as elements of sacramental reality to it. So that's part of worship. And then we see prayer, that they were also um, praying. They were steadfastly in prayer. And then also towards the end, we read that they were giving themselves continuously, daily, it says, to praise, to praising God. So all, all of these are part of worship. And, and the one word that would have an element of worship, but it's more the element of our lives lived, is the word fellowship. Um, I just want to read it as it is in Acts 2, 2. It says, And they continued steadfastly, verse 42, in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. Then it says, In breaking of bread and in prayers. Fellowship is the word koinonia. I try to select, when I say a word in Greek, I try to think there's a reason for it and not just to say a Greek word. But the word koinonia, you may have heard of it already. It is a word that sometimes is transliterated because it's a very precious word. It's a word that means sharing in common, but with a spiritual connotation. I share with Christ and I share with you. See, we have it in common together with Christ as a connection. Paul uses this term speaking of the koinonia of the sufferings of Christ, the fellowship in the sufferings of Christ. And so the church was fellowshipping together. They were, they were sharing in common. It speaks of, of their desire for one another, their concern for one another. And very likely, there again in Ephesians, uh, Acts 2, later when it speaks of the need that arose among them, that they were sharing all things in common in verse 44, it says in verse 45, and they sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. This shows the extent of their koinonia. They, they were so concerned for one another that they had a sense of responsibility for one another. It's almost as if here I'm an older man and that young man is poor and needy and he's going to be like my son now. And so I will sell something to provide for him. And the context there is not that this happened once and it was over. No, as the needs arose, they would go and sell other things. And someone who hadn't sold for two months, then they invest in that way in the kingdom and bring it to the apostles' feet. They had a burden for one another. They wept with those who wept. They sang with those who sang. They were compassionate. When it hurt, they hurt. And this is, again, what we experience as a body. You may have a small little cut, but all of a sudden you're all together taken because that infection is making your whole body hurt. But it's, 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 in, it's in a little member where it came, but the whole body is involved. That's koinonia. And I just want to end with the evangelism. 
I want to end with evangelism because still in our Lord's Day 21, I love it how they put it in our question 55 where they say, Secondly, that everyone must know it to be his duty readily and cheerfully to employ his gifts for the advantage and salvation of other members. Now, notice this. I've been saying a lot of things the church is supposed to do. They could have put that list here in the catechism. The catechism is just a summary. They can't put everything or else it'll be as big as the Bible. And and then it will be very hard to go through it. It's a summary. But it's important to note that those authors, they took the things that seemed to matter most of all. And when it asks, what do you understand by the communion of saints? It said first... That all and every one who believes, being members of Christ, are in common partakers of Him and of all riches and gifts. So, so they summarized everything that, that I brought to you and just said, them, they who believe. And then I, in a sermon, I bring more because there is more. And then secondly, it says that everyone must know it to be his duty readily, cheerfully to employ his gifts. We talked about gifts. But what for? For the advantage and salvation of other members and of course not just members in the church but hopefully outside who will become members of the church of Christ evangelism when William Temple said this about the church he said the church is the only cooperative society because that's in in one way of describing the church we are a society cooperating together in the world that exists for the benefits of its non-members. We look at those outside and we say they need to be inside. They need Jesus. And we pray for them and long for them and evangelize them. We send missionaries there. And when they believe, the wall of partition is broken down for them and they enter into Christ. And they're part of the body of Christ. But when they were outside, we already had an interest in their soul. That's what the church is called to be. In many ways, this is what makes the church in the eyes of the world somewhat of a non-necessity. They don't like it that in our hearts we want them to be part of Christ. They call that proselytizing. They call that shoving the Bible into our throat. And, and it makes the church look arrogant in their eyes. It makes the church look um, like it's trying to usurp a certain authority. But we, we are true believers of what we saw this morning, that time is running short. We believe that there is eternal punishment, and we believe there is eternal reward. And we want the lost to partake of that eternal reward and not experience the eternal punishment. And we know that their time, along with ours, is running short. And so we find ways that are winsome and biblical and wise and loving to share the gospel with the lost. Because we want them to be part of the body. We want them to be part of the building, part of the flock, part of the people where Christ is their king. Do you have that in your heart? I know I have preached other sermons to emphasize this, and I, and I hope to preach more because I think that's, that's even what I, I, I need it for my own heart. I, I want to develop in my own soul a, a weight 
for the, for the lost, a burden for the lost, where I would weep when I see that men and women are without Christ and without hope. But that is one of the main things that makes the world not like the church. I just end with this little illustration. A structure was built in France in 1889, and it was in honor of the international exposition that would be held in Paris. And the site of the structure was so novel and so new to that society that the citizens demanded it to be struck down as soon as that exposition was over. But the architect, as it built, as he built the structure, he grew, of course, fond of, of that majestic um, structure, and he began to fiercely defend that it should continue there to the point where it did. And the architect was Alexander Gustave Eiffel. And of course, I'm speaking of the Eiffel Tower. Now it became the greatest landmark in France. Why do I say this? Well, someone has put together the similarity that in the eyes of many, they look at the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and they question why it should even exist. And there are those who demand that it would be completely destroyed and done away with. They don't see a reason for it. But the builder, the king of the church, he fiercely defends it. He's the one who purchased it. He's the one who builds it. He gave his own life for it. And when Jesus comes back, the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ will manifest its magnificence and its glory and its wonder. And our desire is that people, even though they don't see it right now and even fight against it, would believe that so that they would be part of it and be part of that glory and part of that majesty and be blessed with the salvation that the church is blessed with. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious and glorious God, we pray, Lord, that as we learn what we are to be as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, help us, Lord, to to believe these truths, that they would have an impact in our hearts, and that we would work upon them, Lord, that we would um, yearn for having this unity apparent and this unity experienced. Lord, we thank Thee that we don't need to make it happen. It was Jesus in His flesh that broke the wall of partition. But Lord, I, I confess that because of our weakness, we sometimes make it not possible to be experienced. And we pray, O oh Lord, that Thou would help us. Help us, Lord, to be part of the smoothness Help us to be part, Lord, of the harmony of its reality. We pray that Thou would give us a burden in our hearts, Lord, to, to yearn that those who know nothing of the experience of the church, that by faith in Christ, they would become saved and be part of this body, be part of this building, be part of this people and of this flock, and therefore worship the King forever. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.